You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. The Canadian perspective on this show is unavoidable. And as a Canadian, there's episodes where I just steer right into it. This three-part series has been focused on a land designation in the United States. And following the final chapter, we'll explore the wilderness topic north of the border for two episodes. The reason why I bring this up is that last week we lost Gord Downey, lead singer of the Tragically Hip, but who could be better defined as a Canadian poet. Gord was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and not only did he spend his final year on a farewell tour that truly united a country, but he also used that opportunity to remind us all about something very important. As Canadians, we like to celebrate how amazing we are, and our nationalism makes us want to believe how much better we are than any other country. But that wasn't the Canada that Gord celebrated. And he was willing to point out our flaws. Simply looking at the lyrics of songs like Wheat Kings and 38 Years Old will show you just some of those flaws included in our Canadian history. And in Gord's last year, he reminded us all of our role in reconciliation. And part of that is coming to terms with the role that our nation played in the active relocation of children from First Nations communities to residential schools and the atrocities that took place there. Those effects will reverberate through future generations of the First Nations. And for those of us whose ancestors colonized this beautiful place, we must remember that it's our responsibility to reconcile this and also reverberate reconciliation through our future generations. Gord thought this so important that he used his final moments with us, his fans, audience, and friends to tell us. And on this show, we've discussed how mountain biking can play an active role in reconciliation. And next episode, we'll be hearing about the responsibility that we have when traveling in wilderness, and more importantly, the traditional territory of the First Nations people. Using Gord as inspiration, I want to explore this theme more. As mountain bike advocates, we define ourselves as being stewards of the land. But the term stewardship has its real roots in the First Nations community, and that's something we can't forget. Gord's final project, The Secret Path, is the story of Chani Wenjek and his death on October 22, 1966, while attempting to walk 400 miles to his home after escaping from the Cecilia Jeffrey Indian Residential School in Kenora, Ontario. And for more information on that project, please listen to the end of this episode. I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 27 of Frontlines. My guest is Ted Stroll, president of the Sustainable Trails Coalition. Hi, Ted. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. Nice to talk with you. What I'd like to get from from you first, before we kind of dive into into what the Sustainable Trails Coalition is, at what point did mountain bikes make it into the language of the Wilderness Act? The short answer is that mountain bikes and bicycles generally have never made an appearance in the Wilderness Act itself. 
The Wilderness Act, which was passed in 1964, has been amended only once, and uh, the one amendment involved, I believe it was uh, some kind of adjustment to canoeing in northern Minnesota. Uh, there's nothing in the Wilderness Act about bicycles. The uh, addressing of bicycles all came through federal agency regulations, which they uh, decided under the Wilderness Act, but they all came from the federal agencies, not from Congress itself. So bikes not being allowed in, in wilderness is, is really an interpretation of the Wilderness Act. That is correct. Okay. And, yeah, absolutely. And so how did we get to that interpretation? In the historical record, it's unclear. Uh, when agencies make a decision like this, they usually have to publish it in a, um, in, a, in a federal publication called the Federal Register, and that lets the public know that they're thinking of enacting a rule that might affect the public. So chronologically, since the Wilderness Act was passed in 64 and it said nothing about bicycles either way, uh, mountain biking was allowed between 1964 and 1977. There probably was very little of it, but um, it was permitted. And then mysteriously in 1977, the Forest Service handed down a regulation providing notice of it saying that there could be neither bicycling nor, of all things, hang gliding in a national forest wilderness area. That regulation was on the books with no conflicting regulations between 1977 and 81. Then in 1981, the Forest Service handed down a conflicting regulation that is actually very similar to what a Sustainable Trails Coalition wants to do with the legislation we're seeking. And under the 1981 rule, uh, it was up to the local forest uh, department or ranger or, or, you know, management for an individual national forest to decide uh, whether bikes could go on a particular trail or not. And the default was that bikes were allowed on wilderness trails unless the um, district ranger or whoever it was locally decided that a trail wasn't suitable for mountain biking. So that lasted from 1981 to 1984. Although, oddly, the 1977 regulation remained on the books, so the two were in conflict. Then in 1984, after a long internal debate for which we have internal memoranda from the Forest Service, the Forest Service, which was about to abolish the restrictions entirely and just allow mountain biking, period, it flipped uh, uh, somewhere between 1983 and 1984, and then came out with this new rule that is the one that's in effect today saying no mountain biking anywhere on any trail in any wilderness area. So that's where we stand. It's the 1984 regulation that governs the whole situation. I should add, by the way, that in 1966, right after the Wilderness Act was passed, and at a time when the federal bureaucracy could talk directly with the um, members of Congress and senators who had passed the Wilderness Act, the Forest Service came out with what we believe is the ideal regulation and the one that really reflects the understanding of, of the Wilderness Act itself. There's a, there, in the Wilderness Act, there is a prohibition against the use of, quote, mechanical transport, unquote. And in 1966, the Forest Service defined mechanical transport as being transport powered by a non-living power source. In other words, a motor, or uh, if it's not motorized, then some kind of pulley system or whatever, but not human-powered. And uh, Sustainable Trails Coalition's goal is to restore human-powered travel in wilderness. 
So we think the Forest Service got it right in 1966, then made a tremendous uh, blunder in 1977, uh, waffled between 1977 and 1984, and then uh, uh, compounded its blunder in 1984. And the whole process uh, whereby this took place really is very mysterious because although the agency invited public comment when it posted these notices in the Federal Register, only a handful of people weighed in. In fact, in one of these um, uh, flip-flops that the Forest Service was doing at the time, there may have been as little as a single public comment. We, we can't really tell. It's mysterious. There was very, very little input. And I mean, literally, maybe like a, you know, a dozen people weighing in at the most nationwide. And uh, I imagine that is because mountain biking was so obscure, even, even leading up to 1984, that people just didn't really care about the issue. So what gave the Forest Service the idea in the first place of banning mountain bikes along with, uh, oddly, hang gliders, and then what uh, led to the um, internal debates, it's just, it, it, it's very hard to know. We've never been able to find out. Now, let me, let me clarify, by the way, there are four federal agencies that have wilderness areas. It's not just the Forest Service. It's also the National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So... Within the properties managed by all four of these agencies, there are areas within them that are separately wilderness, and those are governed by the Wilderness Act and by the regulations that each agency has handed down for its kind of wilderness. In the case of the Bureau of Land Management, for example, there was no ban on mountain biking in BLM wilderness until 2000. They came along very late in the game. Uh, in the case of the national parks, I can't remember the year, it might have been 1988, it might have been 1993, but it was the Forest Service that got the ball rolling for its wilderness areas, and then the other agencies came along and added their own regulations later. Before we dive further into uh, wilderness areas and, and what uh, STC is, is, is planning to do or hoping to do, just give me a little bit of a, a backstory of the Sustainable Trails Coalition. What, um, what type of a group is it? Uh, who are you made up of? Um, and and kind of when was your formation? How was your formation? Well, uh, formally, Sustainable Trails Coalition is a is a group of six volunteers and one paid lobbyist in Washington, D.C. So we have six board members. I'm the board president. We have a treasurer. We have uh, at-large board members. And then we have a professional lobbying firm headed by a gentleman in Washington, D.C., whom we pay to um, uh, advance our cause on Capitol Hill. A gentleman named Jackson Ratcliffe, who lives in Marin County, and I jointly founded uh, Sustainable Trails Coalition in the summer of 2015. And what led me to do it, uh, Brent, was I had helped form another organization uh, in 2010 called the Pacific Crest Trail Reassessment Initiative. And that organization, which again, just had volunteers in it and, and no lobbyists, uh, was oriented solely toward um, undoing the the bicycle ban on the Pacific Crest Trail, which which runs from, uh, uh, you know, the Canadian border to the Mexican border, and uh, is 60% not in wilderness, but the Forest Service has probably unlawfully, uh, in my opinion, uh, banned bicycles on, on the whole thing, including the 60% that's not in wilderness. So to make a long story short, for five years, we lobbied the Forest Service and had and had meetings with Upper Forest Service management and, and tried to get them to reconsider their, their 
closure order. We told them that it was probably unlawful, that it didn't make any sense. The Pacific Crest Trail is overgrown. You can't manage it. Mountain bikers would provide a lot of volunteer hours. And in 2013, the Forest Service indicated that it was willing to reconsider the closure order and would put it up for public comment. A few months later, it changed its mind with no explanation except to say that we had misunderstood what it was saying and, um, and rescinded that. So um, there was then a, a, a lull of a couple of years while we tried to figure out what to do. In May of 2015, the Forest Service convened a nationwide meeting of, of top-level land managers from the Forest Service, the BLM, the National Park Service, uh, and uh, uh, you know what are referred to as stakeholders, including us, and then traditional opponents of mountain bikes on the, P- on the Pacific Crest Trail, like the Pacific Crest Trail Association. We all met for uh, two days in a conference room and tried to hash out the issue and were not able to do it. The Forest Service showed no sign of budging. It had clearly decided that it had made a mistake by suggesting in 2013 that it would reconsider the issue and it simply didn't want to be inconvenienced. So at that point, I realized the strategy that mountain biking organizations have been pursuing for decades of simply appealing to the better you know, to the uh, good graces of the agencies themselves, was never going to work. There has never been a bureaucracy since Roman times that ever wanted to inconvenience itself by enmeshing itself in a public controversy. And the Forest Service was, was proving to be no different. It just did not want the hassle. I don't know if it even much cares institutionally whether mountain bikes are, you know, would be on the PCT or whatever, but it, it, it just doesn't want the inconvenience of having to uh, take in thousands of public comments and uh, officialize mountain biking on the PCT. So at that point, I said, this is hopeless. The agencies cannot be worked with. Uh, and that was compounded, by the way, by the fact that I had an op-ed article in the New York Times in August of 2010 urging the federal government to reconsider its wilderness bicycle bans. And because the New York Times is so prominent the uh, chief of the Forest Service immediately reacted to this and contacted mountain bike advocates and said, you know, what's this all about? So for a short time, I was given access to the upper echelons of the Forest Service bureaucracy. I mean, the, the, the very top people below the chief of the Forest Service. But within a couple of months, uh, that communication stopped and they just, you know, the, the, the stone wall went up again and it was clear that they were not interested in pursuing the subject further. So based on those two things, I decided that after, after these decades of rather fruitless efforts by mountain bikers in general, not just, not just the Pacific Crest Trail Reassessment Initiative or me personally, the only solution had to come through uh, legislative reform. In other words, Congress had to reaffirm what it meant in 1964, which was that human-powered travel is what wilderness is all about and that it never intended any of these restrictions on bicyclists, unicyclists, people on pogo sticks, whatever it would be that's human-powered, rock climbers, whatever. So at that point, I sent out feelers to the leadership of the mountain bike community in California saying, is anybody interested in working on this? And I'd already drafted a a draft bill for Congress to consider. So Jackson responded, said he was very interested because he was tired of being uh, prohibited from mountain biking in uh, the Point Reyes National Seashore, which is in Marin County, California, uh, given that there are old ranch roads in there, there's still even kind of you know crumbling semi-paved roads. 
Uh, there are uh, apparently uh, uh, the National Park Service drives around in it. But if you try to ride in there, you'll get a ticket. So he was fed up with that, and we uh, jointly founded STC. And then our next order of business was to find a lobbyist. And Jackson uh, had a college friend who was a, a, an established and, and um, well-known lobbyist in Washington, D.C. So that lobbyist uh, agreed to take on our cause for a reduced rate from what you know, his firm normally charges their, their, their big clients, basically. And that was how the whole thing got rolling. And then, and then uh, the next step was how to fund and pay for our lobbyists whose services are not cheap, even at the reduced rate. So um, Jackson is, a, is a, an IT professional and very, very good at working with um, setting up websites. So he created our whole uh, crowdfunding website, and then we advertised that on Facebook and elsewhere. And uh, to make a long story short, we've, we've gotten, uh, we're in, in the thousands of donations at this point, and we have, I think, maybe somewhere between 50 and 100,000 followers on Facebook. Some of our posts, have, I think one of them got 65,000 views. So through Facebook, money comes in, and we're able to pay our lobbyists, and that's the whole way we've done it. We also have uh, tried to reach out to um, wealthy donors and to the bicycle industry, and we have gotten, uh, and bike clubs, and we've gotten uh, substantial donations from individual bike clubs, particularly in states where access is, is very much threatened by um, not only wilderness designations, but also what's called recommended wilderness. And in that, the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management identifies an area as potentially be being wilderness, and then it administratively bans mountain biking. But my understanding is that in Montana, something like 800 miles of single track have been lost to these designations or are likely to be. So anyway, that, that's, that's what is giving us the buzz is the fact that there's this ever in, you know, this, this iron curtain is descending over mountain biking in the national forests in particular. And even if Congress isn't enacting wilderness areas, the uh, forest service is just making them up basically administratively, not, 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 I don't mean that in an arbitrary way, but they're going through a process in which basically they're creating their own wilderness areas de facto without Congress formally doing it. Yeah, and, and this is this is where it kind of starts to get a, a little bit confusing. And yeah. I think there's a lot of folks that that uh, don't understand that there's there's kind of a, a few different versions of, of wilderness. There are mm -hmm. uh, long lasting established wilderness areas, and, right. and these areas, you know, a lot of them don't have mountain bike opportunities in them. That's right. Um, they're they're far too rugged, far too extreme. But but where mountain bikers are really being engaged on wilderness in a lot of areas is those proposed wilderness areas or those wilderness study areas. And, right. and what's come up over the last little while is the the Forest Service managing these areas as if they were wilderness. So that's right. Um, they're they're proposing them but they're not, while they're in that, that stage, uh, they're not officially wilderness, you're not allowed to, to mountain bike in them. That is correct. Yes, that's right. It's not a nationwide policy. It varies by um, Forest Service uh, region with a capital R. There's like something like 10 or 11 Forest Service regions, and each re region has its own policy, and regions uh, 1, 5, and 8 appear to be the worst. Uh, one is all of Montana and northern Idaho, Five, I think, is uh, it's California and maybe Nevada as well. And then eight is, uh, um, I believe, North Carolina and maybe some other states there. And they have that policy that if they designate an area as, quote, recommended wilderness, unquote, 
then uh, no bikes are allowed uh, pending Congress's decision to make the area a wilderness or not, which uh, in many cases I imagine will take decades for Congress to even decide. So that's where, that's where we are. But on top of that, there is also the fact that in states like Colorado and California, uh, much of the best mountain biking that is potentially available here is cut off by existing wilderness. I mean, we are something like 12 or 14 percent of the entire area of California is existing wilderness. And I don't mean recommended wilderness or wilderness study areas. It's official wilderness established by Congress. And most of that is under the jurisdiction of the Forest Service, and the Forest Service won't allow mountain biking in one inch of it. So vast, vast areas of the Sierra Nevada, of, of northern California, um, near the Oregon border, and in fact, uh, in uh, areas close into urban areas in Southern California is off limits because of existing wilderness. This kind of touches on a, an interesting point uh, with with all of this. So, so you mentioned um, that percentage there in California, and, and when we compare that to the rest of the country, mm-hmm. you know, two percent of the the country is is made up of wilderness. So there's there's huge variation from region to region, and Correct. so uh, we've seen success uh, from groups like the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance in Washington to to deal with those proposed wilderness areas and yeah. to kind of adjust some of those boundaries and create uh, recreation areas or, or kind of maneuver some of those proposed areas so that trail loss is, is, uh, is almost at zero. And any trail loss that, that has happened um, is, is, you know, trails that maybe aren't, uh, aren't that big of a loss to, to begin with. I will interject that that has been true so far. The real test will come when the uh, uh, wilderness um, advocates and the Evergreen Mountain Biking Alliance disputing an area in which both sides feel that it's very, very important to have the area either designated as wilderness or not designated as wilderness. And that will be the true test. Mm. So we'll see what happens then. I, I frankly, am, uh, based on what I've seen before with things like Boulder White Clouds and other, other similar disputes, my fear is that the first time a real conflict arises in Washington state, uh, the environmental organizations are going to simply throw mountain bikers under the bus, as they did in, in Boulder White Clouds. But yes, so far, uh, my understanding is uh, Evergreen has had a, a good track record. They have, yeah. And and, and we've we've heard from Yvonne uh, with, with Evergreen, and, and they definitely do have some other areas that are coming up, right? And, and so it's a constant, uh, a constant process um, that, that needs to happen. So Sustainable Trails Coalition, they are looking to, to end the blanket ban on uh, bikes not being allowed in, in wilderness. So this is going to benefit any of those future wilderness areas uh, and, and has the potential to benefit any of the, the current uh, wilderness areas. But you're not looking to to essentially, you know, if this bill gets passed, if bikes are allowed in wilderness, that it's now fair game for every biker everywhere to access every wilderness area uh, everywhere. That's, that's not the case. Correct. As our board member Jackson Ratcliffe tells uh, the press constantly, in seeking to end the blanket prohibition, we are not seeking a blanket permit. We don't have any uh, desire to have mountain bikers riding on the John Muir Trail in the Sierra Nevada at the height of summer when there's all these hikers on it, or on the, um, uh, you know, in, in, in places where the management doesn't think it would work. And that includes 
popular trails like on you know Mount Rainier National Park or Glacier or whatever. What what the legislation seeks to do, and the way it's worded in both houses of Congress, what it would do is simply return authority to the local forest ranger or national park supervisor or superintendent or BLM area manager to say, okay, uh, these trails you can ride on. There's low potential for conflict. They're well-maintained, and and, um, uh, I don't see a problem here. Then on these trails over here, they're busy in the summer, but they would be really great for mountain biking. So I'm going to allow them after Labor Day. And, and then on these trails here, they're popular. They're very popular at all times. So on these trails, I'm going to allow mountain biking after Labor Day and before Memorial Day, but only on Wednesdays and Thursdays, something like that. And then for this other set of trails over here, we can call them Category D. They're not suitable for mountain biking. They're in very bad shape. They're erosion prone as it is. The hikers and the horses already erode them enough. They can't, they have, uh, they can't carry any more capacity, and frankly, it's just a mess, and there's high potential for user group conflict. So I'm not going to allow mountain biking at all, and the legislation on that group of trails. And the legislation is aimed and would permit exactly that, not a blanket opening of mountain biking on all wilderness trails, but simply letting the manager decide. And in fact, it's, it's even more conservative than the, what the Forest Service itself was doing from 1981 to 1984, because, as I mentioned, under that regime, the Forest Service rule automatically opened all trails to mountain biking unless the local authority specifically closed the trail. Our, leg, uh, the, our legislation doesn't even do that. It simply uh, allows discretion by the um, local manager with no automatic opening. Now, our opponents have pointed out that under the Senate bill, if the forest manager or park manager or BLM manager does absolutely nothing for two years, says not a word, then uh, the trails under that person's jurisdiction would open up. But if they do anything, including just announcing that uh, there needs to be a review under uh, uh, the U.S. law known as the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, uh, NEPA is the shorthand, or some kind of internal agency review, that's enough to stop the process, and there's no automatic opening in two years. It is if they literally say not one word, there would be an opening. And in that case, it would just be an informal pilot program because mountain bikers would ride some of those trails, and if any problems develop, social conflict or some kind of environmental problem, then under the legislation, the um, local manager still retains the authority to do what I just said before, to designate trails that are are rideable or not rideable, and if they are rideable, under what conditions. So it is very, very modest and conservative and narrowly drawn legislation. You know, essentially treating these areas like how we manage uh, all other areas. Um, You know, some trails are hiking only, some trails are multi-use, some trails are bike only. You know, we, we do this in other places, so why can't we do this in wilderness as well? Correct. And, and one thing, since your audience is, is very well informed, let me say that another complaint we've gotten is that the House of Representatives version doesn't specifically lay out all of this discretionary authority. It simply says that uh, mountain biking is not considered an activity that's prohibited as a form of mechanical transport under the Wilderness Act. So people have misinterpreted that as thinking that uh, the House version would call for a blanket opening of all trails to mountain biking. But uh, that's false. Uh, 
all it does is remove the blanket ban whose sole basis is those terms in the Wilderness Act mechanical transport. Once that blanket ban is lifted, there's a whole panoply of other federal regulations that remain in place that allow full management authority. So whereas the Senate bill lays this all out in its language and reaffirms the other regulations, the House bill doesn't do that, but they would have the same effect legally. Let's take this time then to, to speak to, to some of the, the critics uh, of this. Sure. There, there's some folks that are afraid that, that if something like this is going to be passed, that it's really going to polarize uh, mountain bikers from working with other groups in the future. And, and, you know, one example is, you know, the potential for working more with a group like the Sierra Club. They've got a lot of backing. They've got a lot of push. And, and we can align our two philosophies, you know, as much as we are recreationalists, we're still conservationists. And, and so by passing this, this bill, it's going to polarize us further from groups like the Sierra Club. Well, the answer to that is the people who advance this argument and they do it regularly. uh, The problem is not the polarization of the community. The problem is that they themselves are conflicted and don't know what to do. Uh, they have one hat in the traditional environmentalist ring, and they have one hat in the I love to mountain bike ring, and they're torn. So um, the default for them is to, is to take half a loaf and recognize that uh, uh, wilderness areas are off limits, and maybe they would like to ride there. But in order to uh, appease and, and get along with uh, groups like the Wilderness Society and, and various other organizations, they need to... Um, to use a $10 word, they have to propitiate them. I mean, meaning they have to appease them and uh, stay away from that issue. So the conflict is, is frankly, an internal one uh, with them themselves. The um, polarization of the larger mountain bike community seems to be non-existent. The International Mountain Bicycling Association, IMBA, did a survey of its members. And uh, my understanding is uh, they got a handful of responses from people saying, if IMBA supports mountain biking and wilderness, then I'm going to uh, quit my IMBA membership. But it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it was people who could be counted on one or two hands. Meanwhile, uh, in, in states that are heavily affected by wilderness bans like California, Colorado, a number of the Western states, there was just overwhelming popular support among IMBA members for uh, making uh, 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 restoring mountain biking to wilderness, a high priority issue for EMBA. So the polarization is, I don't think, in the mountain bike community. The polarization is uh, in the minds of people who want to be able to, you know, kind of have their cake and eat it too. But um, that actually might be, uh, you know, it's an understandable perspective. And there's nothing wrong with with having that kind of conflict. I mean, many people, uh, it is perfectly reasonable for somebody, even an avid mountain biker, to say, my priorities are the conservation of wild places in the United States, and to the extent that advocating for mountain biking and wilderness is going to drive a fissure between the groups that, that can be aligned, I'm just going to stick with the, uh, the larger herd. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having that position. However, the, the problem with it is, and nobody's ever given me a satisfactory answer to this, is that the wilderness-based bans grow and grow with each passing month and each passing year. 
And uh, the standard, uh, so, so eventually you're going to get to a situation in which the most scenic roadless areas in the United States are largely going to have no mountain biking in them. They may allow it now, but in 20 years, they very well may not because of a, a recommended wilderness designation. So when you talk to the, um, uh, you know, uh, the people who have that point of view, I'm both an environmentalist and a mountain biker, their standard answer is to say uh, institutionally, well, we will um, uh, deal with that uh, by uh, working with these other organizations with whom we have good relationships, and we will do boundary adjustments and companion designations, and uh, uh, we will make it work. And that's fine uh, if you can really do it, but if, 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 if what happens as a practical matter is that you save, uh, let's say there's an area where there's 100 miles of single track uh, that's being considered for wilderness. If the goal is to sit down with the wilderness advocates, and, and by the way, you know, we're wilderness advocates too, but what I mean is the wilderness traditionalists who can't abide the thought of mountain bikes in the wilderness. So that's what I mean when I say, I should say traditional wilderness advocates. So if the goal of mountain bikers is to save 15 miles of trail and give up 85, uh, uh, you know, I, I call it the death of a thousand cuts. Eventually, you're going to get to a situation kind of like uh, the British Army, you know, being driven into the water at Dunkirk, and there's no place left to go because so much has been lost, and you save little parcels here and there. But uh, over the years, you really lost the battle. And when I bring that point up to uh, people who, who see that as a sound strategy, they never really have a response to it. They just say, uh, well, we like the Wilderness Act the way it is. And that's, that's what they really think. They don't they're not enthusiastic about mountain biking and wilderness anyway, and uh, they feel like there's, there are enough places to ride. So, but in terms of, so we're not dividing anything. I mean, we're we're simply narrowly focused and very reasonably so on restoring a reasonable degree of regulated mountain biking in wilderness and on the national scenic trails like the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail. The divide is really all in the minds of the people who are very uncomfortable with the idea of mountain bikes and wilderness in the first place. And um, that is, I think, just a tiny percentage of the serious mountain biking community. Very few people. Yeah, and, and we see a separation regionally. You know, you, you referenced that uh, that survey that, that IMBA uh, put out, and, and the numbers that I have from it were 48% uh, support bikes in wilderness, and that was nationally. Yeah. But when you zoom into just the Western states, it was 70% support bikes in wilderness. So, yeah, mountain bikers definitely, you know, want uh, this. Whether or not all mountain bikers quite understand what wilderness is, I think is a, another topic of, of discussion. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that, that might not fully understand that that does not mean all wilderness that, that in areas that don't provide any mountain biking opportunity will not be suddenly accessible by, by bikes. Right. And, and in terms of the, um, the chapter, the, like the IMBA chapter leaders, if I recall correctly, it's something like 79% of them uh, favored what STC is doing. So, that group presumably understands very well the legalities and also the realities on the ground. So if I recall correctly, it's, it's basically, you know, four and five, like what we're doing. And then, you know, we further see that, that, uh, that issue come up in California. There's a lot of IMBA chapters within California that uh, have officially supported SDC. And although IMBA hasn't done that, these IMBA chapters have. And, and so right. it begs the question, is 
this uh, a California issue? Like, you know, is this going to help a place like Marin County that's that we all know is just uh, has ongoing issues with sure. bike access? Um, you know, is this the answer for Marin and maybe not necessarily the answer for the rest of the country? Well, uh, that's right. Uh, you know, it predominantly affects uh, the Western United States, but not entirely. There's an awful lot of wilderness in, in North Carolina, in West Virginia. Uh, I think there's a, a fair amount maybe in Vermont, where you have the um, Green Mountain National Forest. But um, it is predominantly a Western and, yeah, a, a Western issue. Uh, Texas, for example, I'm sure your listeners know this who live in Texas. Texas has hardly any uh, federal public land of any kind. I mean, the whole state is basically privately owned. So for a Texan to really care about this issue, it has to be the kind of Texan who drives to Crested Butte, Colorado, in the summer and finds that he or she can't ride, you know, here or there because uh, Crested Butte is surrounded by wilderness. But if, if the person stays in Texas for mountain biking, it's not an issue. But you'd be surprised, the areas that are affected by this. Uh, in North Dakota, one of the best single-track trails in the entire United States is called the Ma Dehay Trail in western North Dakota. And it runs from near the Canadian border at Watford City down to uh, near the South Dakota border at Medora. And it's about 100 miles of, of fantastic single-track uh, that attracts mountain bikers from all over the United States and Canada, and um, uh, there's, a, there's a big race on it, and it actually supports uh, more than one mountain bike touring organization. Anyway, the Madahe is cut off for mountain biking at the north and the south extremes because uh, those areas are wilderness. And in the northern uh, cutoff, the wilderness is something like, I, I can't remember, it's like a half mile long or something like that. But to get around it, since you're not even allowed to walk your bicycle in a wilderness area under federal regulations, people have to drive 20 or 30 miles out of their way on, on these gravel roads to avoid this half mile stretch. It is just a crazy situation. And so people would never think of North Dakota as being affected by these wilderness bicycle bans, but it very much is. And to the extent that the Mahe Trail is one of the premier economic uh, recreation attractions in the entire state, it really affects the economy of, of all of North Dakota, or at least Western North Dakota, to have these crazy, um, you know, and antiquated bands. So it is not just Marin County. It's, it's, it's many more places than people would think. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of two takeaways that that I see with this, and and I and I find myself I've quoted uh, Lance Peicher at the Bitterroot Backcountry Cyclist a couple times on this podcast, but he appeared on an episode and and he said that a lot of riders just care about their trails and and not the bigger picture. Um, but then the second point, at the same time, it's as we see wilderness areas expand, which is good uh protected spaces is good um and and wilderness is is a good designation there's just that it's going to lock us out as mountain bikers and so uh, you know this is going to become more of an issue for more people it sounds like well i think so i mean again the the proof is in the pudding we do have um donors in the thousands and followers that may be approaching a hundred thousand not all of whom necessarily agree with us but people who are watching what we're doing and that's just in two years. I mean, two years ago uh, in Congress itself, the average staff member and the average member of Congress had no idea that bicycles were banned in wilderness if they even knew what wilderness is in the first place. Now they all know it because of what STC has done over the last two years with our 
professional and expert lobbyists walking the halls in Capitol Hill. Not only that, they've been educated about the effect in their own states. For example, getting back to North Dakota, when uh, our lobbyists first approached uh, the staff of Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who's one of the two U.S. senators for North Dakota, uh, she's a, a moderate Democrat, uh, our lobbyist was told, well, there are no mountain bikers in North Dakota, and there's no mountain biking in North Dakota. There are no trails. And um, a year later, we revisited North Dakota. You know, <laughs> I learned uh, what the staff had told our lobbyists, and we quickly, uh, you know, um, contacted mountain bikers all over the state of North Dakota who now are pressing Senator Heitkamp to, try to uh, co-sponsor the legislation that was introduced in the Senate last year by Senator Mike Lee of, of Utah. So um, Congress is aware of this issue in a way that it, it never was two years ago. And then that's been buttressed by the fact that we've had incredible amounts of press coverage uh, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, endless uh, numbers of regional papers like the Portland Oregonian, the Denver Post, f far too many for me to list in this conversation. But uh, I think even uh, National Geographic has covered us, uh, Outside Magazine, uh, the issue is now everywhere. And so it's part of the national conversation about land management. And even if it takes STC another five or 10 years to get these bans overturned, and it, it could take that long, although I'm confident that we will do it sooner or later, just the fact that this has become such a prominent issue in the national imagination makes it much less likely that there's going to be another loss like Boulder White Clouds in Idaho, where Nobody knew about the issue. Congress didn't know anything about it. And the result was that uh, mountain bikes were banned from this area that, that people had ridden in for years or decades. There just wasn't enough, um, you know, it, it, was, it was just not on the radar screen of the members of Congress who voted on it. And now it would be. Before we dive into kind of the status and, and where we're at uh, with this bill, um, there's there's a one kind of argument against uh, STC and 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 I just I, I want to kind of get a, a feel of, of whether or not it, it is uh, has any kind of merit in truth or it's legitimate at all. But there's there's some people that will say that if something like this gets passed, that uh, resource extraction companies is uh, they're going to be able to piggyback mm -hmm. onto it and and potentially this opens the door for other groups uh mining operations to get into wilderness as well is is that possible is is that is that going to be is there a chance of that well uh the um to give you a um the, the stock answer is there's no chance of that and that actually is the reality and i'll, I'll explain why uh, uh in a minute but just in terms of the log, uh, in terms of the theoretical, um, the theoretical answer to any piece of federal legislation is that anything can always be tacked on to anything. So you could have a, uh, a bill in Congress to uh, name a post office in, in Montana after Barack Obama, and uh, Kennecott Copper Corporation could come along and, and try to get a, a measure tacked on and saying, by the way, uh, in Montana, we can mine copper wherever we want. So anything is always theoretically possible, but here's why it will not happen. First off, it will kill the bill. So um, uh, Senators Lee and, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Lee and uh, Federal Lands Subcommittee Chairman McClintock in the House really want to see uh, reason restored to the management of national forests with regard to, and, and other 
lands with regard to human-powered travel. They think it's crazy that bicycles aren't allowed, given our minor environmental impact and the amount of trail maintenance we would do to fix up a lot of wilderness areas that have become semi-abandoned. So that's their only agenda, despite all the accusations that people make that, uh, you know, uh, their environmental record isn't, isn't to uh, everybody's satisfaction. As soon as, so they own those bills. As soon as uh, some company comes along and, and tries to tack on a provision saying, okay, and by the way, we want to uh, uh, do molybdenum mining on the Red Lady Mountain outside of Crested Butte, well, that's the end of the bill because uh, the Democrats will filibuster it in the Senate. There won't, uh, immediately will create a division in Congress, and uh, uh, it's a poison pill. The bill just dies. So uh, these companies are not stupid. They know that they're introducing something like that just kills the bill anyway, and they'll make Senator Lee and uh, Congressman McClintock mad at them for wrecking their legislation. So people bring this up, but there's no chance of it. And by the way, I also want to point out um, this business of, of, you know, anything can happen at some point. Uh, It's a logical fallacy that we lawyers call the, quote, parade of horribles, unquote. And it is the logical fallacy that if you do anything, something bad could always happen, and therefore the answer is to do nothing. <laughs> and in a way, this is what uh, you hear a lot of environmentalists talk about the precautionary principle, and they, they talk about it positively, but that's what it is. I mean, it, it is a recipe for stasis and no progress whatsoever, because any human endeavor that tries to improve a situation always runs some risk that something could go wrong. And the precautionary principle, or the parade of horribles, as we lawyers call it, uh, dictates do absolutely nothing unless you can be 100% sure that nothing can go wrong. Kind of like, you know, the line in the movie Westworld. So um, that's a recipe for stagnation. It has, uh, the argument has no merit to it, both, both you know, on, on the level of formal logic and on the level of practical politics. It's something that people throw out there because they don't want mountain bikes in wilderness. So uh, where are we at right now? What's, what's the timeline? Um, obviously, this, this has been in motion for a little while, uh, and sure. things certainly don't happen overnight. But what right. is the latest uh, with this bill? Well, we've made far better progress than I thought we would, just because in Congress things do move so slowly. I mean, it's amazing to me that in two years we've had a a remedy introduced in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. In terms of where they stand, the Senate bill was introduced by Senator Lee of Utah, as I mentioned, in 2016. It got two co-sponsors, Senator Flake of Arizona and Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, one of the most respected members of the U.S. Senate. But it it was introduced too late in the Senate session, and so nothing could really be arranged in terms of committee hearings or anything like that. And at the end of each Congress, uh, every two years, uh, on even-numbered years, all bills that haven't passed automatically expire. So when that Congress ended at the end of 2016, that Senate bill lapsed and just kind of fell into limbo, and it needs to be renewed. And I, I know that Senator Lee's staff is working really hard to um, uh, renew the bill, to reintroduce it, but they want to lay the groundwork to give it the best chance of success, so they're working on that uh, as we speak. The House bill, again, which was introduced by uh, subcommittee chairman on federal lands, uh, Tom McClintock of, of California, and he represents Lake Tahoe, by the way, where there's a, a lot of 
uh, just a tremendous amount of mountain biking and also a tremendous amount of access restrictions. So his bill is currently pending. He has been getting requests from other members of Congress to modify the language to satisfy certain concerns that they have. So uh, as we speak, his staff is also actively working on accommodating those requests. And at the same time, I'm confident that uh, the House and the Senate staffs are talking to each other to try to get the two versions closer together in language. So my hope is that in the next month or two, the bills will be a reintroduced in the Senate and be amended in the House, and we'll have uh, pretty much a common front and pick up a lot of co-sponsors, and then the momentum will really get going. How can people help? What can they do? Well, uh, uh, the most important thing by far is every person listening to this broadcast who is a U.S. citizen and is living in the United States uh, has two U.S. senators and one U.S. member of Congress who are responsible for listening to that person's desires. So what we need people to do, and this is by far the most important thing, is to arrange a meeting with either the staff or the member of Congress or senator, him or herself, to uh, just give them a 15-minute pitch about why they want to be able to ride their mountain bike in wilderness. And, and they don't have to prepare, uh, and on the Pacific Crest Trail, and on the Continental Divide Trail, and other places where federal rules ban uh, mountain biking. So they don't have to be a lawyer. They don't have to be a lobbyist. They don't have to be a you know brilliant orator. And they don't have to prepare a speech to read to the member of Congress or the staff. It's very informal. They just go in after arranging an appointment, sit down and say, look, you know, I'm an avid mountain biker. I love riding here. I'd like to be able to ride over there, but I can't because it's a wilderness area. And also, I'm afraid that the Forest Service is going to designate the trails right outside uh, my town, Albuquerque, New Mexico, for example. They're going to create a recommended wilderness, and I've been riding in this area in the Sandias for years, and I'm just going to be turfed out of there. And uh, the staff or the member of Congress will sit there and take notes, and and, uh, that's how you do it. It's just one, you know, um, it's these individual efforts that really, really matter. Secondarily, our lobbyist is uh, our lobbying firm is not cheap, so we welcome all donations and um, we would encourage people to not only donate to us personally but to um, urge their local bike shops and uh, bike clubs and the major bicycle manufacturers to contribute to STC. Like if you're trying, if you're deciding to buy a bike, uh, um, tell you know tell the retailer and tell the manufacturer that you care about what that retailer and what that manufacturer is doing on behalf of of restoring your mountain bike access to wilderness areas. They will listen. Well, Ted, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Brent. After my interview with Ted, he mentioned that he hoped he hadn't bent the audience's ear. And I assured him of my confidence that you as the Frontlines community were interested. And if you're listening right now, then you're exactly who I had in mind when creating the last three episodes. I started recording specifically for this series in the beginning of August, but in actuality, these episodes have been in the works since the launch of the podcast almost a year ago. In a lot of ways, I tried to avoid the topic. I knew it deserved my full attention and the full attention of at least one episode, but I also didn't know where I sat on the issue. 
through the process of creating these episodes, I've flip-flopped on my own personal opinion. And living here in Canada allows me some separation on the topic. Wilderness, specifically, will never affect my local trails. But, and this is really my final landing after recording six hours of interviews and discussing with advocates all over North America on the topic, if we accept that bikes don't belong in any wilderness, then how can we, with confidence, say that mountain bike trails are sustainable anywhere? And this is true outside of the United States. Like so much that happens in the U.S., decisions, events, and morals affect the greater global community. And mountain bike advocacy is no exception. For all those listeners outside of the U.S., and I know you're all out there, whether it's my home country of Canada or you're listening from Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, the U.K., Japan, South Africa, wherever, the Frontline's audience is truly global. What happens in the United States wilderness areas, it may affect all of us in some way. Mountain bike trails all over the world face challenges, and many of the vocal proponents against mountain biking will cite conservation and environmentalism as reasons for restricting mountain bikers. And I think it's safe to assume that the majority of us believe otherwise, and there's plenty of scientific proof to support mountain bike access. But if the highest protection for the environment in the United States is wilderness, then the fact that we aren't allowed to access it creates a status quo that bikes are bad for protected spaces. And in that respect, the argument then becomes less about the trails and more about the principle. And for any conservationists listening right now, you should be looking at the southwest coast of British Columbia as your canary in the coal mine. We are seeing a massive rise of trail users around the Vancouver area, partially driven by social media like Instagram, but also because why not? Wilderness is beautiful. But this user group is vastly uneducated and unprepared in two ways. First, from a safety standpoint, as an increase in search and rescue callouts will show, this new user group can be quick to get into trouble. But secondly, they are vastly unprepared and uneducated as stewards, conservationists, and as responsible trail and wilderness users. The provincial parks around Vancouver are being heavily used. Garbage is being left on trails. Vegetation is being trampled and accidents are happening. And more people getting outside on bikes or not is a movement that's happening all over the world. And we're going to continue to feel its effects. Now, we're living in a world where just last week, the EPA or Environmental Protection Agency is removing content from their website about helping local governments deal with climate change. And Trump's pick for the White House Environmental Office is Kathleen Hartnett White, a climate change denier. When it comes to conservation and recreation, we're all in this together and we need to be united. I'm a mountain biker and a conservationist. And those two things do not need to be in conflict with each other. And so there is no reason why conservationists and mountain bikers need to be in conflict with each other. Now let's keep this conversation going. I wanna hear what your takeaway is from the last three episodes. What's your opinion? What do you want to add to this conversation? 
Next episode's interview will be shorter than the last few, and I'll have lots of time to include your thoughts on this discussion. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also stream past episodes on YouTube and SoundCloud. You can also send me an email or audio file to FrontlinesMTB at gmail.com if you want to get involved with the conversation. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, as well as links to the Sustainable Trails Coalition, how to donate to them, and a link to the Wilderness Act itself. Music is by Lee Rosevere, and production notes by Jennifer Pride. And as mentioned in the intro, if you're interested in learning more about Gord Downey and the Secret Path Project, I've included links in the show notes. You'll also find a link to donate to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjek Fund. As always, I'm Brent Hillier, this is Frontlines, and I'm going to close out this episode with the first song on the Secret Path album, The Stranger. As all of Canada mourns the loss of Gord Downey, I just want to say thank you, Gord. We will do better in everything we do. This world will change for the better. is not my dad my dad is not a wild man doesn't even drink my daddy's not a wild man on a 
secret path, the one that nobody.